from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. So, Chris, we're going to talk today about artificial intelligence and automation and its impact on democracy with a really fascinating guest who... uh, is a, a PhD alum, a Penn State alum. Yeah, that's really uh, that's really cool because he's uh, you know he's uh, he's one of ours, right? So uh, it's Jay Yanamini, and he is the head of data science and global patents at Google. So yeah, so much in this area that we could talk about uh, today. You know, it wasn't immediately obvious to me when we started to talk about uh, interviewing Jay uh, how we tie artificial intelligence and automation into themes of democracy. But more I thought and read about it, the more I realized there's actually uh, quite a bit there. And a lot of people are uh, writing about this. A lot of people are very concerned about it, even in the midst when in the midst of other arguments that say this is going to transform life for the better in ways that we can barely even comprehend. Yeah. So let's kind of lay out what, you know, just from our quick perusal of things, uh, what we see as some of the main issues with uh, artificial intelligence and automation. We'll let Jay kind of sort out exactly what uh, artificial intelligence is. I mean, artificial intelligence, I guess, as I understand, it's kind of important to automation, and which replaces lots of human jobs. And so one of the implications for democracy, of course, is uh, is that so many things that uh, humans have been doing are, can now be done by uh, computers and machines. And uh, faster and better. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's the issue. And I mean, and I've it, driven with my uh, stepdaughter, so the idea of a self-driving car <laughs> is rem- incredibly appealing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the other implications here for democracy of uh, artificial intelligence uh, ha- has to do with, uh, I guess, information gathering and just the huge amounts of data that are now available that can be processed uh, by machines, that can be processed quickly. I mean, it, it, this again is a, is a story that we've seen before. But basically, the the question is, whenever you have a new technology that brings new power and new opportunities, some people are going to use that in ways that are not great for yeah. other people. Yeah, I find the argument that we've seen it before frustrating. I, in reading about this, I, I came across a lot of people that would say, "Oh, we've seen it before." There was the invention of the printing press. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, invent, invention of uh, manu- manufacturing. Yeah. 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 But, Assembly you know, it, it's also possible that we're now seeing the development of something entirely different. Or at least so new and so, so widespread and so fast that it's a difference of kind instead of a difference of degree. I think we've um, set the table here for, uh, for Jay and Jenna. So let's bring them in and, and see what, uh, what this expert has to say. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Jay Yanamini. Jay, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you. Happy to be here. So excited to talk with you today about AI and democracy. I think you bring a, a unique perspective um, given what you do for a living and your, your background in political science. And I'm sure we'll get into all of those things. But before we do, I think it would be helpful to start with some definitions. Um, when you read about AI or hear about it in the news, it can mean everything from machine learning to you know robots that are coming to, to take our jobs so um, how how do you define it yeah it's a it's a good question um, there's a there's a few I guess there's a few different angles that that we could use and walk through um, but I think starting off in the most literal definition uh, the, the way I think about how to define AI is, is essentially splitting up the two words is, is artificial intelligence and the f- 
artificial is, is much easier. It's this idea that uh, for it to count as AI, it has to be something that's not just a human brain relying uh, on itself. Um, and so most of the time now when folks uh, think of the artificial aspect in AI, what they mean is computers and what they mean is, is, is computation, which is to say a computer is doing the thinking or doing the analysis as opposed to a, a human brain. Um, and then the next question that is, well, what is our, what is intelligence? Uh, that, that that's less clear. That can get into philosophical discussions much more quickly. Uh, what I how I think of intelligence is the ability to make uh, non-trivial, falsifiable, accurate predictions uh, about something, and and. What that means, and, and, and I, the, the key word there is a prediction, which is essentially something where the outcome is unknown. If the outcome is known, then it's like a memory question. Uh, and most tasks um, that we think about AI are, at the most, in the most specific direct sense, a prediction. Self-driving cars, you're making thousands of predictions a minute or a second. Uh, you're interpreting information and making a prediction about what's the optimal course of action for the car to take. Um, for things like uh, translation, you're predicting the appropriate word or the appropriate segment or the appropriate chunk of words um, that mean the same thing in another language. Um, there's a lot of image classification, image detection. It's ultimately a prediction about what is actually contained in the image or the video. Um, and so, so that that's how I uh, that's how I think about it. Now that is a bit separate than or a bit distinct from the robotics angle, which I think a lot of folks, when I think AI, they think of, of, of a, a literal robot that has some physical component. Um, I think most folks would agree that, that the act of a robot by itself is not necessarily artificial intelligence, um, but the, that the, the AI aspect of a robot would actually still be the sort of the compute engine that makes, that interprets the world and makes predictions. There's a, a thread out there among political scientists and, and other scholars that as machines make more and more decisions or they that they will, one, I guess, kind of take over, um, you know, a, a human's ability to make a decision. And so as that happens, it will lead to. Um, you know, decreased trust in democratic institutions and, and in government, and it will kind of breed tyranny, I guess, to, to put it succinctly. Um, given your, your background and, and your experience, what do you make of, of that argument? As a social scientist, right, the immediate question is, 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 are the trends we are seeing causal or are they corollary? I think there's, I think it'd be, it's feasible to imagine that a couple th things have happened simultaneously that might not be as causal as maybe we might believe. There's definitely been a rise in, and an increase in populist-based politicians um, in the United States and, and abroad, um, uh, sort of move towards maybe more uh, strong-handed or, or, or heavy-handed sort of political ideologies. And then, of course, there's also been a fairly rapid growth in the uh, prevalence of, 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 of AI and machine learning in our day-to-day. -day. It's not clear that those two are connected. Um, but I, you, you can see the reasons why people draw their connections. I think primarily they revolve around news and around... Uh, platforms and around the increased ease of sharing information and around the increased ease of sharing disinformation. Uh, and so 
that's the, the the long and roundabout way of saying a it's not fully clear that that, that it's causal and b uh it seems like most people who who believe that line of thinking, it tends to be around the ease of sharing and manipulating information via, um, it's called social platforms. Right. So we have these two streams that, that you've identified. And while it's not clear that they're causal necessarily, do you think that one influences the other or, or will so will do so in the future? Yeah, I think what's, what is Interesting to me as a political scientist and someone who ha- has studied the history of, of of sort of political institutions and, and and political dynamics is for most almost all of history, increased access to information and increased access to sort of create and disseminate information has almost always been. Uh, has almost always driven an increase in what you might call like liberal democratic values, like free speech, um, you know, democracy, things that have generally been held up as good. Uh, and it's almost always been some autocratic force that has fought against the spread of, 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 of information that's going back to the printing press. Uh, and I think what is interesting is we're seeing for the first time the possibility of that actually shifting, where we're now starting to see for the first time the ease of access of access to information and the ease of creating and disseminating information might actually now be contributing to uh, the spread of more anti-democratic values, which is a really interesting sort of dynamic shift that 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 again might be happening. There's some evidence to suggest that it is. And then, what does that mean for the future of free speech and regulation? Uh, and and and. And how to even start thinking about about that question? I think is 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 fascinating and front of mind. I think for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. So speaking of, of being front of mind, uh, we we should mention you work at Google and are you know live in Silicon Valley. I, I presume and are kind of having having conversations about these things. So are the issues you just described something that's discussed within you know, the, the circles that you you travel in? Yeah, I think that that you know, con- questions around around you know sharing information and what should be done around misinformation or or maybe information that that might not have uh, positive uh, goals uh, and the degree of regulation is definitely a hot issue um, if there were an easy answer I think it would have been implemented I think it's an immensely complicated issue uh, that you can strongly see both sides arguments and both sides are are I guess, uh, you know, on the there's there's folks who are arguing for increased regulation on some of these platforms, and you can see why, right? That that might lead to decreased spread of misinformation, a better informed populace, um, in um, an aversion to some of the anti-democratic stuff that that we've been seeing. Um, but the counter to that is, you know, you want you don't want some centralized control over what can be shared and by whom, and so. There's definitely merits to that argument as well, and it's an immensely complicated challenge. It's a it's a hard challenge, um, even on a case by case basis. If you got a team of experts in the room and and gave them you know a handful of of, of postings or a handful of pieces of content, I, I suspect they would have a hard time even reaching consensus on that scale. And then when you imagine the scale that a lot of companies operate at, it's it's tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of pieces of content a day, a week, a month. Um, so it, it's not even a question of how do you arrive at the sort of philosophical position, but then it's a question of how do you implement it. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's immensely complicated. And um, I think a lot of people are thinking about it, but 
but it's hard and there's no clear right answer. Yeah, and there's there's also this this notion of you know taking away the 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 piece of actually reviewing the content once it's posted. It's even determining who has access to to post content. I, I know we've we've seen. Facebook, for example, banning people like Alex Jones and, and other like white nationalist groups. So that that also strikes me as a, as a very complicated thing, thinking about access to, to free speech and, and those those types of things. In many ways, it's the first time that uh, folks have had to address these questions at this scale. Um, and, and, and and it's hard. And, and, and it's hard because it's not just a political question or a social dynamics question or a philosophical question, but it's also a technology question. It's one and 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 I think that that can contribute to the challenge of having productive conversations around this topic because there aren't that many folks who uh, have expertise across those different domains who actually understand the technical challenges that it would take to implement some of these solutions, but also understand the complexities of the social dynamics that might be underlying you know, the challenges in the first place. And so even getting the right folks in the room who can really have a full enough picture of the tech, of the social dynamics, of the sort of political aspects, even that's really challenging. The other piece here is that, you know, these are are companies that have to put out new products and meet user demands and, and and all of these things. So how do you how do you balance those like day-to-day needs with some of these bigger problems and, and questions we've been talking about? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question and it's hard and I think what a lot of companies are trying to do is is a hire or create uh, create teams and departments and groups whose full-time job is just to think about these types of, of ethical issues and then create uh, create scenarios where those voices are sufficiently uh, ha- have sufficient authority or discretion to actually impact product roadmaps uh, and so that's now getting at like the in, you know the inner workings of companies and again I can't, I can't, companies are so big and so diverse that I it's it, it's hard to point to the nuances or speak to the nuances of what it would take to make that type of relationship work in companies. Um, but companies are big, leave, living, breathing, complex organisms. And even if, and it's, it's, it's just hard to do that type of, uh, it's hard to introduce that type of, of, of thinking in a really productive way. It's not like there's a blueprint where you can say, oh, well, this is how company A did this in like 98. And, and now there's someone who wrote a book on the best practices for introducing like ethics and sort of normative guidelines into an AI-based product. Like it, a lot of this is kind of trying to do the best, the best the co- people are trying to do the best they can kind of as they go, but it's uncharted territory and uh, it's, 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 it's very tricky. Mm-hmm. But, but I think for most companies, it's very front of mind. And there's a lot of resources being deployed. It's something that that the companies generally, I, I think, take extraordinarily seriously. While all of these big picture issues are kind of being sorted out on, on multiple fronts, are there things that individual users can do to kind of be smarter about the information that they consume online and kind of the the way that they they interact with with platforms? Yeah, I think. That's interesting because a lot of, you know, no one makes people log on to anything. Uh, this is an interesting kind of social phenomenon that leads to often uh, echo chambers and and really bipartisan media and really targeted media is that people like what they believe, right? I think left to their, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that people left to their uh, their own 
fully pe- pe- people given like full freedom to choose what information they review almost exclusively focus on information that that they agree with or that supports their belief uh gets them riled up you get a little dopamine hit and you feel good about it uh so that's <laughs> that's a that's a tough question which then gets a bigger can relate quickly to bigger questions of if people's natural instinct is to do things that maybe aren't in the best interest of sort of broader communication or broader like societal progress, uh, should then there be a re- reinforcement mechanism? So this is something where, you know, recommendation systems where if you continue to click on certain types of articles, you will get served those types of articles. And then that's the question, of, well, is that the right thing? Should you maybe like intersperse articles that the person would have clicked on? And then you get into very complicated questions uh, uh, around, around what content to actually show people. So that was a long way of, again, not giving a direct answer, but to say this stuff's really complicated and it's it's questions that I don't even think you know, the research community hasn't had time to really sink their teeth into and, uh, and, and it's hard and it's not clear what the right answer is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, even just, you know, what, what you were saying about people being – served up things that they like based on their on their their past behavior um has has your view on that changed you know coming into it as an as an outsider given your background to now kind of being on the other side so to speak or you know working working at at a company yeah i think when you have a working knowledge of how like ranking systems work or recommendation systems work like i can tell when i log on to certain sites that why it's pre- it's pretty easy to see like oh I got that because I, I got that ad because I just read this article or and I think it's a it's a bit easier to be aware that hey maybe you know I'm getting all these articles and I need to just like click on another random article just to see what's there to kind of disrupt w- what I'm being shown so I think you do have some have some visibility just from understanding how machine learning works so I can be a little cognizant of it um, but there's definitely people who don't have that visibility and might think that those are actually that that's actually the order of the news as it's being published and uh and um and it's and it's tricky um if people really like reading those articles who's to say that they shouldn't just read a specific type of article or be shown a specific type of article um it's tricky yeah um going back to 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 automation and, and ai um how should candidates be talking about it in 2020 uh yeah it's, it's a there's definitely this balance, right? Because you could take the pure. There, there are many ways to be. It's very easy to be very optimistic about the societal benefit of technological adaption. I mean, this is. Uh, you, you look at. There's a really interesting study that that floats around online. It's pretty easy to find, which is the cost of light. And it used to be like a full day's wages. I'm, these numbers are approximately right, but but I'm probably off a bit. Something like a full day's wages for an hour of light because you had to burn whale oil or something. And now it's like a minute of labor can provide light for a day. And so that's just it's – it's a quick glimpse into the success story of, of – of innovation that it's reduced costs and increased quality on so many technology fronts. Um, and so there's there's that story. There's And there's the self-driving story where it's feasible to imagine a world where 50 years from now there's one one-hundredth of the traffic fatality or the, of the uh, car fatalities that, that, that there are today. So that, I think, is a pretty easy, direct, legitimate story to tell of the benefits of innovation. Mm-hmm. But uh, so there is there is there a counter? Though? Yeah. So the, yeah. Yeah. So the counter is is I think primarily uh, 
what are you going to do with and this is this is something that happened it's it's actually an argument that's been made almost always forever which is someone comes up with some new device it displaces a meaningful number of jobs what do you do with those people and i think what we're seeing now is is folks maybe think that the rate with which this is the change is occurring uh, is is faster and there are some jobs where it might where the where the disruption and job elimination or the job the elimination of the jobs as they ex- currently are might come quickly and and, and truck driving is, is one of the examples that's held up uh, quite frequently where self-driving cars in X number of years are really uh, kind of live up to the potential that might mean a very meaningful and very quick reduction in the number of truck drivers number one employer in the majority of states so what do you do that and I think what the optimists would say is new jobs will be created there'll be new people to do additional road maintenance because quality of roads will become increasingly impactful there'll be new people to do repairs on the self-driving trucks they'll maybe have more software intensive repairs they'll probably have batteries batteries but people will have preference to run off of renewable energy so there'll be also I think the optimistic opinion is that they'll will st- we don't know what those jobs will be but there will be lots of additional yeah. jobs that were created yeah I, so and I I have to wonder how much you know companies that are making self-driving trucks on these things whether they're considering the the economic implications or are if they're more so just thinking about okay how can I make the most money for my shareholders or you know whomever I'm I'm accountable to yeah I think um yeah, so the, so many of the technologies definitely have moni- like positive monetary implications, or else no one would be willing, or, or else private institute, private investors wouldn't be willing to make the investment. So there's some just inherent aspects of like there has to be some profitability on the road for publicly traded companies to to invest in this. Um, I don't think though that most of the folks who spend their day to day on things like self driving cars are primarily motivated by money. Um, there's other ways that are a hell of a lot easier to make money than trying to build like a really really hard new technology. I think I, I think the core motivator on many people on working on these types of innovations is like really is like the public good, and I think the public good will be will be is already and, and will be increasingly apparent. Um, I know a lot of. Uh, a lot of the tech companies are very aware of the potential um, sort, of, sort of job disruption or, or changing dynamics of the job landscape. And a lot of the companies are spending a lot of money on sort of education programs. They're they're doing a lot of uh, education around like how to you know become a software developer or, or, or learning more technical skills. There's lots of online courses that are being offered, investments in things like Coursera and Cloudera and those are not Cloudera, Coursera and Udacity and those types of Linda and those types of, of, of platforms. And then actually doing a lot of outreach and funding other organizations that are supporting and will hopefully help transition folks into whatever that those new jobs are is, 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 is helping people transition into those roles. Thinking about kind of moving some of these technologies forward, we've seen, for example, uh, a, a fight against getting rid of coal jobs, for example. So are those are those fights happening with with regard to to AI technologies, and and, and you know, will they continue as as these things continue to spread? Yeah, that's a that is a good question, and it's something that I think folks maybe don't always appreciate, which is how even if you have a much better solution that's of a technical nature, it can often be extraordinarily hard to get industries to adopt 
if it means that there might be fewer jobs in that industry or or potential less profitability in that industry. And so I think what you see is not every industry is equally uh, different. Industries are are have different levels of success in pushing back against leveraging technology. And it's not surprising, I think, to imagine what industries are the most successful at pushing back. It tends to be the ones where the folks in that industry make the most money. So, uh, if, if you know, if you were to do a thought experiment to say who's going to be more effective at pushing back against AI, truck drivers or radiologists, um, it, it, most folks would probably say radiologists are probably going to have a better chance of pushing back against AI, even though. Many people would argue radiology is much easier to to replace or to radiology is much more conducive to automation quickly than self-driving cars. Uh, and so, industry by industry, I think you're going to see very high variance in the ability of industry to to push back. Um, and and the reality is, in many and this is almost always the case. It's not always or it's it. Technological adoption is almost always in the is almost always against the economic best interest of the incumbents in that industry. It's almost always true. Uh, and then it's a question of how successfully. Often it comes down to how successfully can people push back. And certain industries have historically been very successful uh, at pushing back, and other in- industries have been have been much less uh, successful uh, at, at pushing back. I mean, another good example is just is is ride sharing. I mean, the taxi lobbies try to push back. But just weren't able to, and and or haven't weren't able to in a way that you know meaningfully prevented the the rapid growth in in ride sharing. Um, other industries are much better at or much more are able to push back in a much more organized manner. And it's, it's a it's 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 interesting. I mean, my industry, the legal industry, is very is very successful at pushing back. Uh, for obvious reasons, right? These are folks who went to uh, you know, the average legal professional or the average lawyer spent a lot of time in school. Um, the ones who are in positions of power make a hell of a lot of money, um, and they make generally make money billing hours. And you're going to fight tooth and nail any technology that reduces your ability to bill hours. And that's not a knock on on the industry. I myself, I mean, no one, it's very, very hard to find someone who's willing to support something against their economic best interest. I wouldn't support it if, if, if it were me too. Um, and so you definitely face that, that type of pushback. Um, and then, but different industries are more able to, to, to successfully push back. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's a place for AI in terms of how, how the government operates and functions there? Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about what industries. It's it's a fun theoretical question to say what are going to be the last industry industries to really be, or what industries are least conducive to artificial intelligence. Uh, I think the government's one. Um, I actually think many aspects of the law are going to be pretty sort of technology resilient, um, and the reason is, and I think it comes down to. Uh, what is the what is the terminal node in like the decision making process, or or how do you what's the final way to determine how well someone's performing or what the right answer is? In the law, there's it's you know constitutionally required at a certain the terminal node is almost always trial by jury, and it's hard to see AI disrupting that. And you, maybe you will, you'll see the use of more data in courts and more advanced forensics and, and that type of stuff, but it's hard to see the final decision not being made by humans because 
the reality is that there is no right answer. If if the answer were crystal clear, it wouldn't have made it to the jury. So it's, it's almost by definition a decision that requires sub- a, that requires a subjective human final decision. I think governments like that as well, where there's no clear right answer. It's not clear, uh, and it, it would be hard to imagine training an AI system to make like very subtle policy decisions in areas that have never been made before. So again, the, the terminal node almost almost has to be at this point a, a human decision maker. Um, I think things like other things, uh, industries like like therapy and counseling. There's a lot of new apps and, and technology, but ultimately the product you want is like a human to console you. Um, and I think a lot of religious or a lot of aspects of religion and uh, careers around religion, it seems also unlikely to see disruption. And so um, that was the long answer to the question of, of the impact of, of AI and government. And I think that's one of the, one of the industries that's, that's one of the industries where the real decision making is probably the is on the lower end of being conducive to being disrupted by artificial intelligence. Sure, and I think I can pretty safely say that that's the only time that the phrase terminal node will ever be used <laughs> on this podcast. So, Jay, we're going to end as we always do with our four mood of the nation poll questions. So, thinking about American politics, what makes you angry? Uh, can I say two things? One, actually, uh, maybe I'll just 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 keep it one. Uh, one is uh, the Assumption of bad intent. Uh, I think both sides or folks tend to immediately assume someone who f- favors a different policy has some bad intention, or they actually don't want, uh, you know, better healthcare outcomes, or they actually don't want a cleaner planet, or they actually don't want more f- more fairness in the workplace. And I think if you actually stop to talk to most people, uh, they act- if you stop, if you stop to talk to most people. And in, in, as a, instead of starting with what's your what policy do you think, who's your candidate, and instead you started with what do you want the outcome to be, uh, I suspect most people across the political spectrum generally agree on the same outcomes. Like everyone wants a clean planet. Everyone wants, wants f- f- kind of fairness. Everyone wants like the appropriate level of, of taxes coming you know, in line with like how much you earn and how much work you've done. Most people disagree on the way to get there, and most of the ways to get there aren't known with certainty, so they're oftentimes valid debates. So, so the thing that, that, that angers me the most, to, to recap, is, is people not assuming good intent. Uh, what makes you proud? Uh, that we don't resort to violence. <laughs> in many ways, it's like uh, uh, a proof of the robustness of the democratic system, that even when people assume bad intent and start arguing, it's very rare that, re- that re- they resort to violence. And it's still the case that in, for the most part, when people do, it's universally condemned. Oh, and uh, what makes you worry? Uh Global warming in the environment, uh, a word that, that we won't be able to get to meaningful solutions, um, largely based on my first point that I, I, oftentimes it seems like um, there maybe isn't the type of alignment on on what we want the outcome to be. And instead, people resort to name calling and, uh, and, and, and animosity and assumption of bad intent. And then finally, what gives you hope? Uh, People always struggle with this one. It's okay. Yeah, no. Well, now I'm on college campus, and it, uh, I'm a college campus in rural Pennsylvania, and I live in San Francisco. And uh, actually, spending time with students and hearing what questions they have, what they want to do, 
their approach and beliefs and opinions, uh, I always find that uh, uplifting and uh, and and it always come away with the from those interactions with current students feeling better than I did. Uh, I feel better leaving those discussions than I did going in. All right, well, that's that's a good place to leave things. Uh, Jay Anamini, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. All right, thank you. Well, we're back, and and that was uh, that was a really interesting discussion about some uh, complex topics. Uh, you know, he said something that really struck me about the relationship between artificial intelligence and politics, uh, and he talked about how increased access to information almost always. Uh, it drives liberal democratic values. Uh, and, and I guess this takes us back to something we were talking about uh, before the interview, too, that maybe this time we're seeing something diametrically different. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. and, and I think that's probably true like with all the information that's available out there. Um, actually, is a, is a boon for autocracies. Right. I think that's true. I mean, this gives them enormous amounts of power. Right. And, 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 and we're control seeing over this. their citizens. We're seeing it certainly in China. Right. I mean, one place I was reading was uh, playing some, uh, you know, mind games about this. And, you know, so imagine in North Korea if everybody had to wear a biometric uh, bracelet. And, uh, you know, so the government knew when they were looking at a picture of uh, the beloved leader, whether or not they were really excited or whether they were actually cringing. Yeah. Or, you know, or lying. Yeah. You know? Or lying. Yeah. yeah. So misrepresenting themselves. Right. Imagine what, right. what they could do mm-hmm. with information mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that. You know, we mocked during the Cold War the centralized economies of places like the Soviet Union. They were inefficient compared to the decentralized capitalistic economies of the West. Uh, but, you know, one of the problems with centralization is uh, it's impossible for a centralized force to have all the information available to make good decisions. And so they made a lot of bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But actually now central. Well, one thing that AI and all big data and all these things together do is to actually centralize enormous amounts of information uh, in the hands of you know one individual, one organization, one leader. You know, I mean, I also think, you know, he Jay is absolutely right that that um, these mechanisms of algorithms that that um, search for you and find what you like and move you in a direction that you're already inclined to go um, just feeds on some of our worst and most undemocratic proclivities as human beings. Right. We all want to hear our own points of view reinforced and it makes it feels good when we hear that and it feels uncomfortable when we don't and so now what we have instead of having a paper where there's all these articles and all these opinions or a um, or a, a, a nightly news show where somebody else is making decisions of what we hear we can now control it ourselves and all I AI does all these algorithms do is make it much easier to do that. Yeah. And it reinforces polarization. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how we get beyond that either. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be little niches. No, we can't. We're just all screwed. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. Well, then we're done. (laughs) I'm generally of the belief that technologies are not reversed. This really does get you into some of the interesting political questions in the 2020 campaign that Elizabeth Warren, more than anybody else, Mm -hmm. is raising. 
there are lots of large comp- uh, companies right now, and you can make an argument that a lot of them are uh, are too big, right, in terms of it, just competition. But uh, Elizabeth Warren's point is that by signaling out Google, Twitter, and Facebook, that these companies are acting in ways that are are um, harmful to our society and to our democracy and that's and then it is completely legitimate that's the that's the job of government to say this is where um, we need to put uh, limits on right. on what the corporation can do that's why I mean no you know a, a corporation corporations did not worry about um, Vehicle safety until government made them. Government uh, corporations did not worry about water and air pollution until government made them. That's the job of government. But the problem is now, um, our our government, our politics is um, distinctively unproductive and um, well dysfunctional. And dysfunctional. And so the prospects that we're going to have this natural and le- completely legitimate counterweight to um, rampant capitalism is just not in the cards. Well, that, that's a good and important point because you really do need a, a fully functioning government to be able to counter the sort of power right. of the private sector. And and and, 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 and that's, that's kind of lacking right and now. And in the current climate, yeah. this change is happening so much faster. And because government always moves slow, it's already in a, in a um, catch-up kind of mode. But now nobody's catching up. Right. And no, I mean, no, these these questions aren't getting beyond the hearing stage. And so it is um, it that makes it doubly troubling. Right. Not just that these things are happening, but that nobody in government appears able or willing to engage these questions and to engage their role of oversight and regulation in a in a constructive. And yeah, um, I think it's strong to say way. no one in government. I, I think, yeah, that's fair. I right. think it's fair to talk about that government as a whole is. Just, yeah, that's I get, is that is a right. That is fair. Capacity yeah. to deal mm-hmm. with these, and and you know my suspicion is just like with climate change, but and and, and like the case case of climate change, it may be too late that you need a kind of generational change in leadership before you really have people that are able that understand intuitively. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. So I guess we're left with the idea that in in as we hear so often, the hope is in young people, right? And uh, and that may be what we end up hearing in the 2020 campaign is that we need people for whom this is intuitive to engage the the, the mechanisms of politics to change things. Yeah, and really pleased that we were able to get uh, Jay, who has the advantage of uh, being able to think about this both as a political scientist and as a as somebody with uh, you know the kind of technical chops to be working to be working in uh, Google to help uh, help us work through some of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So thanks to thanks to Jay and thanks to Jenna from the McCourney Institute for Democracy. I'm Michael Berkman, and I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.